Morning everyone, it's my pleasure to give you the sermon reading this morning. My name's Rob, and it's from 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 to 8. Give you a chance to look it up. I'm amazed by Paul. Paul wrote this to his spiritual son Timothy. Years before this, he'd been harassing, persecuting, tracking down, hunting. And in one case I know from the Bible, even um, giving his approval to the killing of Christians. Now hear what he has to say. In the presence of God and of Christ's patients, desires, I gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of the ministry. For I'm ready to be poured out like a drink of. Let me pray as we get into this passage. Dear Lord, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray that I might speak to it faithfully now, that we might know you better and love you more. Amen. I've been thinking a lot about conflict this week, and I'm kind of wondering why is it that we're willing to have all sorts of conflict over trivial things like toilet seats and leaving the milk out, uh, but we're not willing to have your risk conflict over really significant issues of life. I think positively, uh, some of it's about trust. So we trust our relationships are strong enough to endure our minor frustrations. But less positively, I think it comes down to selfishness. So if you frustrate me, then I feel entitled and justified to express that frustration to you. But I'm less willing uh, to risk conflict if I feel it's going to come at a personal cost to me. Now, I think that's true generally, but I think it's also true when it comes to our life together as Christians. We want to be liked, and we want to be respected, and we want to keep our friends. And so often, we're not willing to risk those good things for something greater. And so, what would motivate us to risk those things? And I think it comes down to three things, and certainly it'll come out in this passage. Some of it has to do with conviction. Are we so convicted that the good news of the gospel is good news, that, that everyone needs to hear it, and there's a real danger if we don't? Do we, do we really want to honour God with our life? And then thirdly, do we really love people enough that we're willing to risk even our friendship for the sake of their good and for the sake of their godliness. Last week, uh, we finished with these words. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when we talk about God-breathed or inspired, we're saying that the scriptures are written by God's appointed people, speaking in their culture and context, using their words, 
but with a God-given inspiration about what they need to say. So all we're not saying is that God dictated his word to them, but he inspires it. And God's word is this. Um, because if we're not careful and if we're completely honest, then we can often use God's name to justify, really, what we want to do. And we don't even necessarily recognise we're doing it. Uh, in, the name, in the words of Jeremiah, Deceitful above all things, who can understand it? It doesn't mean that we don't listen to our heart, but we do need to listen with a healthy scepticism and a humility that recognises that we are sinful. In the words of the song, we all have hearts that are prone to wander, and we have heads that are prone to excuse and to justify. And so we need to be discerning when it comes to our feelings. And we need to be discerning in terms of how we read our circumstances. You know, simply because that circumstance presents itself as a good opportunity, as a door that's open, doesn't necessarily mean that God wants us to walk through it. You know, if you walk past a car and you see the keys in the ignition, and we don't presume that this is a gift from God. <laughs> but I think sometimes we take a little bit of that rationale into how we sort of discern our circumstances. Absolutely, an opportunity may well be a gift from God. But it also may well be a temptation from the devil. And so we need to be discerning. And this is why God's word is so important. It transcends our feelings and our sin. It cuts through the noise of our culture. And it provides a faithful constant. Where times change... Our circumstances change, our culture changes, but God's word never changes. And it contains everything we need for life and salvation as each page points us to the salvation we can have in Christ. Now, that's a rather extended introduction to our passage today, but this is why Paul is so adamant when he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. There's a sense of urgency in these words, but also a glimpse of what's at stake. God the Father has appointed God the Son to judge the living and the dead. And that is bad news. Because how can anyone ever expect to stand before God and to think that we would be vindicated? You know, it'd be a bit like, you know, uh, the world's best long jumper, the world record holder long jumper, you know, being told to, you know, jump the Grand Canyon. You know, it's just so far off, it doesn't matter how good it is. Uh, you're never clearly good enough. And so we need to hear the problem that we are separated from God and that, our, um, that we will be judged. But there's also a glimpse of the solution. We see it in these very unassuming words in view of his appearing. And that appearing changes everything. In the words of Paul, as we go back earlier into our letter, he says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death, and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now that is good news. 
uh, thoroughly undeserved good news, but it's a good news that takes us from the inevitability of death to the certainty of life. And when we put these two passages together, let's be clear about what Paul is saying about judgment and death. Uh, death is not simply our heart stopping and us joining the you know, biodegradable circle of life. Uh, God has established his kingdom, and so our options are A, immortality with God, where we share in his kingdom, and that option is available to everyone. Uh, to stick with the Grand Canyon analogy, uh, Jesus is the one who builds the bridge from one side to the other, and he invites us to walk across that bridge. Our option B is still immortality, but it's immortality apart from God, and that's hell. And that's a confronting message, and no one likes to talk about hell. It's, it's unpopular in churches, it's certainly unpopular in our culture. And I think part of it is we find it confronting because it tells me that there is judgment, and that means it's telling me that there's something wrong with me. And certainly in our culture, that's an unacceptable message, because our culture is all about affirming ourselves and making us feel good about ourselves, and there's nothing particularly good about the idea of being a sinner undermines my freedom. And how dare you suggest that God will hold me accountable for my choices? Now, particularly if my choices are connected to my deepest natural desires, my sense of identity and value. And we don't want grace and forgiveness because that would mean letting go of those desires. And so we come back to what do we want from God? We want his affirmation. So on a society level, we demand God's love, uh, we don't want obedience, and we're offended by his justice. And those attitudes of our culture are then seeping into our churches and are being regurgitated uh, by leaders who are supposed to represent Christ, but in the end, simply use Christian language to endorse the values of our world. Uh, that is the risk around us. Uh, we see it in our culture, uh, we see it in our churches, and it's nothing new. Paul saw it in the early church, and so he says to Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. Now, Timothy has a particular role in the church, he's the leader of the church, and part of that role is for him to stand up and do you know, what I'm doing now and proclaim God's word publicly. But if you are a follower of Christ, then whatever our role, we still have a role to proclaim God's word. It might not be publicly, uh, but it is certainly personally. And that includes correcting and rebuking. And we're not coming to this from a position of self-righteousness and superiority. Uh, I hope we're not coming from a perspective of we think that we are better than someone else. Or because we want to make ourselves look good. We correct and rebuke because we love people. Uh, and we want them to love Jesus. Uh, Paul's talking within the sphere of our Christian relationships. And in season... 
Uh, that's when things are you know, coming from a positive trust relationship. When you know the person, when you trust the person, when you hear the person with goodwill, that's in season. When we hear that, we're thankful for that type of correction and rebuke. But we also know it often doesn't work that way. We know when someone corrects or rebukes us, our first reaction is often uh, to get defensive ourselves. We certainly want to avoid it for ourselves because no one wants to be on the other end of that. The risk. If we are absolutely convinced of the goodness of the gospel, isn't it worth the risk? And equally, uh, we need to be willing to hear the correct and the rebuking, but we also need to be people who encourage. Uh, it is easy to encourage, but we often don't do it very well. Do we? You know, we, we often uh, get so distracted by the, the busyness of life, or we get focused on the frustrations, that we stop to remember to actually recognise the good, and to be thankful, and to say words that build up rather than to tear down. Words that encourage our joy in Christ and encourage thankfulness and generosity. You know, words that are kind and compassionate. I think sometimes we sort of approach it, maybe it's more of a male thing, but encourage <laughs> a bit like a birthday present, you know, where you figure, I'll just give one good one. Uh, that is not great encouragement. It's a little bit more like a, a dripping tap, uh, but less annoying. Uh, but isn't that what we want? Yeah, is that actually kind of what we need? You know, we, we always appreciate encouragement. And so we correct, we rebuke, and we encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Because we're not speaking to win an argument. We're speaking to win people. But that can be tough, can't it? When the good news that we want to share isn't the good news that people necessarily want to hear. So from our passage, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires to myths. In the context of Timothy, these are people who want a version of following Christ that aligns more comfortably with their lifestyle and their view of the world. They want leaders like the leaders in Jeremiah, who say, peace, peace, wise, but in reality, it's just a story that makes us feel safe and secure. And in the context of faith, it helps us feel connected to the transcendent. And a good myth has just enough truth to sound good, but in the end, it leaves us exposed to hell. And now, we don't know the specific myths of what Paul is talking about here, but let me suggest two that I think are gaining momentum in our culture. The first is, and just don't stone me quite yet, the first is, God is love. Now that is a completely true statement, and God has shown his love for us in the death of his son on the cross, and his love constantly invites us back to him. But the myth part is when we close the book, yeah, and we all lived happily ever after. Because we know that if we keep reading the book, uh, that it actually talks about God's love, but also talks about our need to respond to that love. Our need to recognise Jesus as Saviour and to recognise Jesus as Lord. He doesn't just want us to recognise his existence and then continuing to live the way we want. He wants the sort of commitment that we take into, or we should take into, our marriage. You know, it's a commitment that's personal and deeply invested. 
Uh, but it also comes with, with mutual responsibility. It's a commitment that recognises that God is God and he calls us to submit to his will for us. And it's a commitment that recognises that his will for us is good for us. And it recognises that his love cannot be separated from his justice. That he provides a way out, but if we're unwilling to accept that way out, then we will quite literally get what we deserve. I think a second, an increasingly dominant myth, is to skip past, love the Lord your God, and go straight to, love your neighbour. So being a Christian is about being committed to caring for the poor and the vulnerable and fighting social injustice or advocating for a better care of God's creation. And all of those things, again, are absolutely and completely true. In Genesis, God gives humanity authority over creation. He tells us to, to look after it. You know, our authority comes with responsibility. One of God's great claims against Israel is their failure to defend those who are least able to defend themselves. In the words of Isaiah, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. So these are all good things. These are all ways that we should be engaged with the world around us as Christians. We should care about poverty. We should care about social injustice in our society. But they are not a substitute for repenting and believing and from our sin and committing our sin to Christ. Whatever the particular myth of Paul's day, he writes to me and he says, I know it's hard to stand up and preach a message that people don't want to hear. But this is the message for the glory of God. So keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Keep going, keep doing what you've been called to do, keep honouring Christ. And Paul feels the urgency of his plea because he recognises that his time is just about up. That he has served God faithfully and now he's passing the baton to Timothy. Verse 6, for I'm being poured out like a drink offering, the time for my departure is near. Now the drink offering was part of the Old Testament sacrificial system, so sometimes a sacrifice represented sin and a lamb was slain as a substitute for, for the people. The sacrifice is also represented giving the best to God. And as the wine was poured onto the altar with grain and oil and you know, the, the fattened lamb, it all became a fragrant offering. So if you're a carnivore, you know, think lamb roast, red wine sauce. Okay? Quite literally, that, that beautiful aroma uh, as the offering to God. Now, our passage began reminding us that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And it finishes with Paul facing his own judgment, but also confident of his vindication. That he will, but because he has been given the grace of God, that Jesus died in his place for his sin. And so he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, I love those words. Now, I'm thinking they'd actually always be perceived as loving, 
And that means at times uh, we will face persecution, at times we will be hated. And sometimes that fight comes from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's tough, isn't it? You know, it's one thing to be attacked from outside, but it's much harder to feel attacked from the He has persevered. You know, there are times when we are tempted to give up. You know, we doubt God's goodness, we doubt our strength, we doubt our salvation, and it can just all seem too hard. And so you just want to sit down and give up. Or you just look at the rest of the world and you think, you know, I'm going to stop running this race and that can see how we run in the present, isn't it? As we keep our eyes on that. So let's make sure we keep listening to God's word as it points us to Christ. And let's not just run the race for ourselves, but recognising actually winning is not just us getting over the line, but bringing as many with us over the line as possible. Uh, But that can be confronting. And sometimes that means even risking conflict for the sake of their good and for the sake of their godliness. So let me pray that we would have that willingness. Dear Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you have saved us through your Son. Lord, I pray that we know that so deeply, we are convicted so deeply, that that will shape everything we do in life. Lord, I pray that we will love other people enough, that we're even willing to risk friendship and our comfort for the sake of their good and their godliness. Amen.